Welcome to this BTOG podcast series. My name is Tom Newsom Davis. I am the vice chair of the BTOG steering committee and a medical oncologist based in Chelsea and Westminster Hospital in London. This is a regular podcast, a series entitled BTOG Does, where we will be having informal chats with an expert and hopefully answering some of the important questions about subjects we face every day in the management of patients with lung cancer. It's important to say that sponsors of BTOG do not have any role in the choice of subject, the planning, the content, or delivering of anything that we are discussing. So today it's a great pleasure to introduce my colleague, Professor Samreen Ahmed. Samreen is a professor of medical oncology at University Hospitals in Leicester, and we are gonna be discussing EGFR mutated lung cancer. Samreen, welcome to the BTOG Does uh, podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for BTOG uh, for the invitation. And I hope I can add something um, informative to this today. I certainly hope you can as well. So first of all, we're going to be thinking about how we pick up EGFR mutations. Now, I think most of our colleagues are going to be doing uh, mutation testing for patients with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer uh, routinely. I hope we are. How do we pick up EGFR mutations? There's been some change from PCR-based testing to ngs based testing recently, so that's polymerase chain reaction versus next generation sequencing. What's your view in it and and what are you doing in Leicester and what are the pros and cons of each approach? So I'm glad you've mentioned that because, you know, all of these mutations are really reliant on the detection of them to be able to treat them. And it's absolutely imperative that we get comprehensive um, analysis of what type of mutations they are, because this world is changing very, very quickly, as you and I know. And we have a whole host of drugs related to the paired mutations. So in Leicester, unfortunately, we are a little bit behind the curve. We're definitely not doing next generation sequencing yet. Um, our genomic hub isn't uh, up and running um, in, in order to be able to Uh, process the number of uh, lung cancer patients we have and therefore we have an in-house polymerase chain reaction PCR um, panel that we use for both EGFR and BRAF mutations together and you know the the limitation of that is that you are only going to pick up the panel that you have the specific um, specific mutations that you can target Whereas obviously next generation sequencing um, will pick up all mutations that are not expected to be there. So that is the main difference. And therefore in the PCR panel, you are likely to miss the rarer mutations. Now, I think the good thing about PCR panels is that the failure rate is much lower you don't need that much DNA if you're only doing that panel. NGS failure rates are because of the quality of the DNA. So there are roundabouts, but as the technology of NGS improves, I'm hoping that we can all move to NGS so we get a full comprehensive panel of mutations, not only a specific panel, PCR panel, say for EGFR. Absolutely. And I think it's fair to say that as part of the National Genomics Hubs uh, coming in into, into the UK, um, that NGS is going to be seen to be the standard. And I, and I guess the rarer mutations are um, things like X120 insertions and other rare EGFRs like the G719 
class of, of mutations. What's your, your take on these? I mean, the commonest ones we see are exon 19 uh, deletions and L85AR mutations. Um, how, how are the exon 20s different in terms of patient demographics and how are they different in terms of treatment? Because they are very different, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, I've been caught out before, um, you know, when you uh, are told that you're seeing a new patient, I was told that he had EGFR mutation, I was all set to prescribe my EGFR TKI. But then when I got to the report, it said exon 20 insertion, we all need to realize that though it may be an activating mutation, it is resistant to our standard EGFR TKIs. So this is the one, this is the key difference that your patient's not going to respond to the drugs that we are used to now, such as ozimertinib, bifatinib, gipitinib. So the key thing here is that we recognize that this is a, a group which is different, though it occurs in the same area as the EGFR activating mutations, this is resistant to EGFR TKIs. Yeah, and I think you made a really good point there, which is in all um, molecular analysis reports, there has to be an interpretation of that. So always read down to the bottom, always read the interpretation. And what I do when I see a mutation, I don't quite know what it means, is I phone up the molecular pathologist and say, what does this mean? Um, because it's really key. Um, and I think that point about exon 20 insertion mutations not being sensitive to uh, standard TKIs is key. And there are rarer mutations, like I mentioned one or two, so G719X mutations, S568I, you can actually use TKIs, but it's going to be a little bit different. And so you want to, again, have a chat to your, your pathologist. So uh, I would like to give uh, a tip to those who don't have um, an expert like yourself uh, at the end of a phone. So I use My Cancer Genome, and this is a website which is uh, very well established, uh, you know, uh, ratified by NCI. So it's really important that you go to a website that you uh, is trusted and you know the information is going to be correct. So My Cancer Genome is excellent. I don't remember all of those numbers in terms of the mutations. So I just put them in, click lung cancer, and it, up it comes with all the studies that have been done, all the uh, data behind it. And it will tell you whether it's sensitive or resistant to the particular drug you want to use. That's great advice. Um, and of course, you can also uh, learn about it through regular attendance of BTOG conferences and webinars, and you will therefore become uh, an expert yourself. Um, okay, so we've done common, we've done uncommon mutations. Let's say you found a common mutation um, in someone who you're expecting this, it's being picked up on your PCR or your NGS, and it's an exon 19 deletion, your common mutation. Um, what is the standard, uh, most common first line treatment for this kind of patient summary? Well, we had lots and lots of choice, didn't we, before? And we still have lots and lots of choice. But I have to say, we are fairly disengaging our brains now as we start because the data is so, so strong towards ozimertinib. So for me, practically speaking, unless there is some specific area that I'm really worried about, particularly um, perhaps a high risk of pneumonitis, um, ozimertinib is my first go-to. Um, so that, I suppose, blows everything else out of the water. For me, clinically, that's my choice. Um, I think if, if there were some particular patient characteristics that you're worried about, you may go for others. But in terms of toxicity, efficacy data, I'm very convinced about ozimertinib first line. 
Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think it's by far the commonest used. Um, I think as we've used more of it, we've learned there are some side effects that perhaps weren't described so much at the beginning. For example, there can be effect on cardiac function. And it's worth reminding people that if you look at the SPC or the, the summary of the product characteristics, it does recommend baseline ECGs and doing an ECG every cycle, for at least the first two or three cycles, and also doing a baseline echo and an echo about three months into treatment. I really would recommend people do that. It's now on the list of recognized cardiotoxic medicines, even though it's comparatively uncommon to, to see that. Um, you mentioned exon 20 insertion patients do not tend to respond to, to drugs such as ozimertinib. So would you be using chemo instead for this group of patients? It depends what trial availability you have. Um, we have TAC 788 um, study open, which is the first line. Um... Maybe certainly. Mobisertinib, thank you very much. Exactly. So uh, mobisertinib uh, randomizing versus uh, standard of care chemotherapy. And if you have access to other um, trials, that would be your first go-to. It's certainly not commissioned as yet. Um, so chemotherapy plus or minus immunotherapy would be your first choice. Immunotherapy in this group is not something that I would recommend, I have to say, because they're generally non-smokers um, and they really respond quite well to permatrexid-based chemotherapy. So that would be my go-to. Yeah. I mean, I, that's a really important point. We, we know conclusively that even if someone has a high PDL one especially on 100%, if they have an EGFR mutation, first-line immunotherapy is not an effective treatment. Do not use it. That's been shown in studies. What about these rare mutations? Um, the other ones we've talked about, the G719 uh, group, the, the S568, or another mutation that might come out. Um, Ozzy is that the one for those, or, or should we be reaching for our, our My Cancer Genome and, and see what they think? I mean, I think um, you're probably more of an expert at this than I am. I haven't, because we don't do NGS here, I've not had that many rarer mutations um, to be able to target. I have to say, I've, I'm not that convinced with the data, but perhaps you could tell us about your practical experience. Um, yeah, I, I think lack of data is absolutely what it, it is the problem. Afatinib has putatively uh, more evidence behind the, the wider mutations, just reflecting the fact that in the studies, they often accepted uncommon mutations. Um, and I think there is some evidence behind uh, afatinib, and certainly I've used that recently, um, a patient with a rare G719X and an S568I co-mutation um, and actually N equals two, but both those patients responded uh, to, to afatinib. I don't think there's a right or a wrong, actually. I think you can do either, but you could certainly look up the data, some quite good papers summarizing what the active data is. I just think if you do have a rare mutation, just make sure you've recognized what it is and you've had a little think about it before doing the reflex reach for the Aussie. The only thing I was just going to add was that um, your main EGFR studies really only included your exon 19 and um, 21 delete, uh, exon 19 deletions and uh, exon 21 um, mutations. So really, it really then leads us to think, well, the other mutations, we have very little data. So mainly phase two data. Yeah. 
So let's think about brain disease. Imagine a patient who uh, has come along, they've got the EGFR mutation. You were going to reach for your osimertinib. You do a uh, baseline MRI. And my personal view would be in people with EGFR mutation, we should all be doing baseline cranial imaging because the risk of brain metastases is very significant. Let's say you find some brain metastases. They're actually asymptomatic. Um, what's your view on what you do? Do you involve neuro-oncology MDTs? And what's by and large the approach of that, that um, process? Do people um, go for stereotactic radiotherapy surgery or do we sometimes look at just pursuing our osimertinib and seeing what happens? That's a great practical question. I think we're all scratching our heads as to know what to do. I am with you, Tom. I um, uh, screen at baseline. And, you know, I've learned from previous mistakes and um, have my fingers burnt. So I'm now screening everybody at, at baseline. And I think we should be doing that. As you say, it's a high proportion of patients who will have brain metastases. But I would warn our audience really to make sure you counsel the patient that though they may be completely asymptomatic, if there is finding of brain metastases, they are, it's imperative that they inform the DVLA. And even if they're asymptomatic, they will not be able to drive. Then we come up onto the treatment. Ozimertinib, as you know, is very good CNS penetration. And the new uh, TKIs that we're seeing in phase one, phase two studies are also very CNS penetrant. So hopefully we will get better and better control system, systemically um, intracranially. However, whilst that is still develop in development, I think it is important that we discuss all our patients at, uh, uh, we have a regional, super regional uh, brain met MDT. Um, and even if I'm not going to refer them to stereotactic radiotherapy in the first instant, because they're asymptomatic, I do get them reviewed at the MDT. So they have some follow-up data. And then I think the imperative is to follow them up. So at three months, don't forget to do your MRI when you're requesting your extracranial um, assessment as well. And at that point, if you feel that they are being controlled or they're actually reducing, and I've had a couple of patients who just with osimertinib have done very, very well, keep monitoring. The trouble is once you lose brain tissue or get symptomatic disease, you probably don't get that back again. So this is where my nervousness starts, that if you've got a big lesion um, and you feel that that is unlikely to be controlled on systemic treatment, treat that. But there's no right or wrong answer. Generally, if they're asymptomatic, I tend to press on with systemic treatment and add in stereotactic treatment if they become symptomatic or we see uh, radiological progression or instability. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I guess the key absolutely is picking it up early, do your scans, involve a multidisciplinary team. And there isn't a one size fits all. You, you can go fry for approach. And I, I agree with everything you say, as always. Um, so second line treatments, we've had their osimertinib. Um, let's presume they're on that. They're progressing. Um, we've decided a switch of systemic therapy is required. You've got a couple of options. You've got pemetrexed carboplatin. You've got Impal 150, which is carbo, taxol, atezolizumab, and bevacizumab. Um, 
uh, and in the X120s, uh, actually licensed, although not yet funded uh, through NICE, we also have agents such as Mobo, Certanib, and um, Amivantamab. Um, if we're thinking about the Empower 150 versus Chemo, do, do you feel strongly? Uh, do you offer both? And it's it's the patient's choice. Do, do, what's, what's your views? So I think availability is obviously key because this is a massive area of research and um, as presented in our VTOG last webinar, this was dominating the whole of the research arena. What do we do with these patients post ozimertinib? So you're obviously going to go to what's available. I have to say, if they're very fit and well, I go for the Impower 150, so four drugs together, chemo, atezo, and bevacizumab. However, if I feel that they're going to struggle with that, then I may just go for chemotherapy um, and immunotherapy alone. Um, you could just go for chemotherapy alone if you feel that they might um, have toxicities with immunotherapy. The, the key area of development is going to be um, what we're looking at in the Chrysalis study, and, uh, and I believe you're one of the PIs um, uh, with that study. And the that's really looking at genomic resistance uh, appearance. So there are a number of mechanisms of uh, resistance to ozimertinib. A lot of them are something called MET amplification. You're not gonna really pick this up unless you do next generation sequencing post-treatment on these patients, either with liquid or with tissue biopsies. So there's a number of mechanisms and those drugs are specific to those mutations. So for MET amplification, and uh, the, the, there is a study which has recently reported the um, Chrysalis study, and that's looking at amivantanab, as you say, that's an intravenous antibody um, looking at, so uh, and in combination with lizertinib. Lizertinib is a very penetrant um, T EGFR TKI, and so the combination of that has shown very good responses. Amivantanab is intravenous, lizertinib is oral. So there is a, you know, an issue about um, intravenous treatment. So we'll have to look at that. Combination looks at very good responses. We need to be mindful that they can cause pneumonitis. So be mindful about that. It looks as if lizertinib is very CNS penetrant. So that's uh, one of the views to look at. Brilliant. Um, so in a last minute or two, um, adjuvant ozimertinib now is licensed for patients with early stage lung cancer who have had surgery after chemo, if you're going to give chemo or if you weren't going to give chemo anyway, um, and is actually funded at the moment. It's funded through the project Orbis. Um, has only shown disease-free survival benefit because we are not haven't got enough mature data to show overall survival benefit. In 30 seconds, Samarine, what's your view on adjuvant ozimertinib? Are you a believer based on the very impressive uh, disease-free survival hazard ratio of 0.17 or thereabouts? Or are you a, I need to see the overall survival benefit before I stick my patients on, I think it was three years of adjuvant ozimertinib? Yeah, great question. Um, nobody really knows. We should really, if you're a purist, wait for overall survival data. How it's going to take ages because these are such good, effective drugs, um, and it's all event-driven. So you're gonna, you're not going to get overall survival difference di difference data for ages. So you've got to go on disease-free survival data. So you can't deny patients a very active drug. Um, 
on the basis that we're waiting for the data. Um, I think if tomorrow I had a patient who was suitable, I would put them on chemotherapy, then followed by three um, years of osimertinib. Yeah, actually, I must say, I have started a couple of patients um, and uh, it's interesting to see. And I guess we'll see the overall survival data when it comes out. I must say, I was quite convinced by the DFS benefit. It was pretty impressive. Um, and I, you know, it's, it's easy to think one thing in the when you see the conference presentation, but whether you're in front of a patient with an EGFR mutation, it's quite a different thing. And I've used it on one or two people so far. So that takes us to the end of, of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you particularly to uh, Professor Samrit Ahmed for her insightful thoughts on EGFR-mutated uh, lung cancer, and we hope that was beneficial. For more information uh, on BTOG events, including educational things coming up, and most importantly, the, how you can become a member, you can, of course, visit www.btog.org. But we thank you for your attention, and we look forward to you joining us at our next podcast. <laughs>